Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is a self-described, unapologetic access to justice advocate. Natalie Ann Knowlton is the founder and principal consultant at Access to Justice Ventures. Access to Justice Ventures aims to eliminate systemic barriers to legal resources by empowering entrepreneurs who are developing scalable solutions. Even as a law student, Natalie was deeply passionate about humanitarian and civil rights issues. No surprise, she ultimately decided to focus her career on the ADJ space. Her list of activities is extensive. She became a research analyst at the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, known as IELTS. That's a think tank which also develops and implements innovative solutions to advance the legal system and serve those in need. There, Natalie and her colleagues have conducted quantitative and qualitative empirical research in order to effectively address access to justice challenges. Today, she serves as advisor on regulatory innovation at IELTS after serving various roles in research and special projects. In 2022, she launched Access to Justice Ventures and also became a transition consultant at Self-Represented Litigation Network, which aims to reform the legal system as the number of self-represented litigants rises in the U.S. Finally, Natalie is a limited partner at the investment fund Long Jump and the venture capital fund Overlook Ventures, both of which help new founders develop their businesses. In our wide-ranging discussion, Natalie talks about how she channels empirically informed outrage to make a difference in law, her vision for regulatory reform, her work at Access to Justice Ventures, and her goals for changing the A to J space. Her enthusiasm and dedication to change are infectious. I hope you enjoy listening. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I look forward to our conversation. You, you, you've got so much stuff going on. I almost don't know where to start. But uh, let's start at the beginning. You got your college degree and your master's in international affairs, and you go to law school. Right. <laughs> exactly. Why? Why? Uh, why law school? Why? Why do you want to be a lawyer? I initially did not. And you can probably credit that to a long line of attorneys on my father's side. And I wanted to have a different pathway, but I was deeply interested coming out of college and humanitarian issues, human rights issues. And as I was looking to a master's program in international law and humanitarian law, I thought, well, it might be nice to have that supplement to these degrees and and have that actual law degree, something that gives teeth to the pieces that I was learning on the um, master's degree side. So most people probably don't think of a law degree as a supplement, but that's how I went into my graduate training. Yeah, most people don't think of it as a supplement. That's very true. You spent your career focused on access to justice issues to provide a shorthand. Where does that passion come from? I don't know if I can pinpoint it to a certain certain moment, but when I was studying in undergraduate, I was deeply interested in humanitarian issues, as I had mentioned, and specifically genocide. Don't know where it came from, but I did a lot of studying. I wrote an honors thesis about the Holocaust. And when I was ready to go to graduate school, I was really geared towards human rights issues. And there was really no other option for me. It was just what within that category of human rights I was going to focus on. And as I got into law school, I became even more focused on humanitarian law and I graduated and went to work for the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, which is a research institute at the University of Denver. 
And there I started becoming involved in, in what we would now call access to justice issues. But these were issues that I really had no idea existed. Nobody taught me about these in law school. So while I was focusing on human rights and graduate school, I wasn't focusing on the human rights, civil rights, access to justice issues that are endemic in our country. And nobody taught me that. So coming out of graduate school and law school, I was just open to this whole new world of what human rights could potentially mean for my career here in the U.S. and related to law. You know, you make make such an interesting point about law school's failure to teach people about the A to J problem, again, to use shorthand. Uh, It seems like a real missed opportunity for law schools and almost something they should be professionally required to do, given the nature of the problem in, in our society. I agree. I think students are missing out to a large extent on what the market actually looks like today. And there's been a lot of research done on the people law sector, what that looks like now compared to the business law or corporate law sector. Corporate law sector is taking off while the people law sector is in a market failure, if you're going to use terms that others have used. So I think that's just perpetuating this this divide between the success of the corporate law sector and the, the failure of product market fit, if you will, service market fit in the people law sector, this notion of not teaching law students what that looks like. Yeah. So your bio in LinkedIn has one of the greatest sentences I've ever read. It says, I'm channeling empirically informed outrage to develop a succession plan for an outdated legal industry justice system, which is just one of the most fabulous descriptions I've ever heard. Thank you. And there's so much to unpack in that one in that one sentence. Let's start by what do you mean by empirically informed? Empirically informed by that, I mean informed by actual data and research that we have. The legal industry may be Maybe it's not fair to say this anymore, and it's probably not. But 10, 20 years ago, I think it was fair to say that empirical research was not part of legal process reform or legal reform of any sort. And so the work that I have done at the Research Institute and the work that many others have been doing over the last 10 to 15 years is adding data and adding an understanding of the landscape of the people law sector that's actually backed by empirical research. And and that's important because we're moving then from assumptions to actual research and data. So the, the move from anecdata to data, I think, is really important as we talk about legal reform. Give an example of, of how you would gather data and then how you would analyze it in a particular problem. Lay in the plane for us. Okay. So at IELTS, which is the University of Denver Institute that I've worked at for quite a while and still continue to in some, some form today, We did uh, qualitative empirical research and quantitative empirical research. So by quantitative empirical research, our research team would do docket studies, pulling information from the filings and different case types to analyze case processing trends. We would do qualitative empirical research, which is most of the research I have done directly. The study that I would point most people to and the one that I'm most proud of in my career to date has been what we call our cases without counsel study. And that was a series of interviews that we did with over 150 self-represented litigants and family court. And this is a perfect example of what we're talking about here in terms of empirically informed. We as stakeholders make a lot of assumptions about what people without attorneys think and what they do and what they experience in the process. But by actually speaking with people, even if we're validating some of our assumptions, we're at least putting their words to our assumptions. We're we're validating through empirical research that what we think is happening in these systems where people don't have lawyers is actually happening. And we also, when we talk with people directly and gather that kind of empirical research, we have more of a foundation for what people are actually experiencing. I, I think 
think empathy can only go so far. We actually have to talk to people and understand what their experience is before we can move forward and try and reform processes to respond to that experience. Give me the top line, the headline view. What did you learn from that research and the Cases Without Counsel study? What were the two or three insights you gleaned? Learned that the decision to self-represent is a really multifaceted decision. While cost does play a role, there are other factors, particularly in family law cases, where you have that adversarialness and the children to think about in terms of the case processing, that there are a lot of reasons people represent. Also, people are really prepared. People do understand. Now, I'm talking about the respondents that we spoke with, but I think to a large degree, others that I've spoken with who have self-represented will report that they don't just walk into a court wholly unprepared. They research. They go online. They find the information they can. They talk to friends. They talk to family. Some people even go and meet with attorneys through initial free consultations, and they do that multiple times. So there is a strategy that self-represented litigants are employing that I think a lot of insiders don't think about. We just assume that people walk into the courthouse door and have no idea what they're doing. So what solutions do you come for these multifaceted problems? I mean, you talk about an outdated legal industry system. That's a big multifaceted problem. Just just the people law sector is huge. You have issues of people's access to court systems and filings, yet there's a whole range of problems associated that don't ever get to court, wills, estates, all those kinds of things. You've got problems with people who qualify for legal aid and people who don't qualify for legal aid but can't afford lawyers. Where do you start? That's a great question. And I don't know if there's a single entry point to start looking at some of these problems, but uh, I would kind of call out the continuum of services that many people in this access to justice space refer to. So when you're talking about how to educate people on on rights and obligations, even if that's in transactional matters or if that's in matters that are going to go before the court, we're talking about an increase in legal information. And what does an increase in legal information mean? It means information that you can find and that's accessible, but also information that you can then use to take the next step. What do I do with this information? What I have it when I have it. So this increase in the type and quality of legal information, I think, is critical for individuals trying to navigate the justice system. I also believe that court processes, when when we talk about the outdated legal system, the, the core of that is we have a legal system that was built for attorneys and judges and by attorneys and judges. And so it wasn't built for the people who are largely using the system today. And I think we need to rethink that. And I think the more open-minded and forward-thinking courts are doing that. They are appreciating that the litigants that come before them are their primary market and not the attorneys because most cases now in these people law sector case types don't have an attorney. So how do we rethink court processes so that average people can navigate through them? On the case processing side, and this is where I think we get to more cases that do involve attorneys even, the law is very expensive. Courts are very expensive. So it's it's not just that attorneys are out there charging a ton of money and people can't pay that. Attorneys are responding to the price of going through the system. So how can we streamline processes for attorneys as well? I think that's going to come out with and has has been a focal point for many people working on this. And then when we're talking about market-based solutions, I think that's really important. A lot of the work that I've been doing is on regulatory legal reform because there are people, of course, out there who maybe can't afford an attorney at all. But then there's this huge gray space of people who maybe could, but maybe couldn't. And some of those people might be making $80,000 a year, but have two. in student loan debt and $200,000 in medical debt. So in terms of wealth, they're really not at a higher income level than what we might consider low income. So there's this whole panoply of services and, and different approaches. And I think 
am glad in this in this sector that we have all all these different stakeholders working on this continuum of services to try and improve the system. But there's really no one point. Yeah. I want to get to the regulatory issue in a minute because it fascinates me. But let me, let's stick on the court, the access to court systems. Richard Susskind talks about the need to think about courts as a service and not a place, which I think is at the core of, of many of our, many of our problems. Has the pandemic influenced this change you're talking about in attitude towards reform? Has it sped up the willingness of courts to think of the delivery of their services differently? I think it has. A caveat, though, and since you mentioned Susskind, we'll get back to a point that he makes, which really hit home, that the changes that happened during the pandemic were made out of necessity, and they were largely changes with respect to modalities of communication, how people are communicating and where they're communicating, that in-person then went online or virtual. And that's really, as Susskind points out, not transformational. That is just something that would naturally occur. It's great in terms of automation and in terms of thinking about new ways to connect with people, but that's not transformational change. So the caveat with respect to the changes I have seen during the pandemic and courts taking this as a service and less as the place is now that we're coming out of the pandemic or have come out or obviously we're still in it, but these courts are now thinking about how can I go back to normal? What does normal look like? Can we go back to in person? So I think the pandemic shifted, but only temporarily to this culture of, okay, we have to serve people in a different way because we cannot gather in person. But now that we're gathering in person, I see a lot of changes to go back. There are, there are courts that are not, of course, falling into this trap of returning back to whatever normalcy was three years ago. But I see a lot of courts that are, and I think that's concerning. How do you keep the momentum for the change? It's normal for people. You see it in return to office. You see it in a whole bunch of things. People want to go back. How do you deal with that dynamic? Well, this is where the outrage part of the empirically formed outrage comes in. (laughs) And um, I talk a lot about public outrage, and I don't say that to be flippant, but I do think the public and getting the public involved in these conversations is crucial to make lasting changes. The system insiders can talk all day, and we do talk all day about how courts should do this and how they should do that. And recommendations are released with respect to virtual hearings and best practices. But ultimately, the outcry from the public with respect to service models, I think that's the biggest point that will really move change. So how do you get that public outrage? How do you get that public pressure. You're right. It's it's great for insiders to talk and, you know, that echo chamber is not a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle all that much. How do you get the public engaged, particularly in a in a world that's so divided in a society that everything seems to be a fight? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. And particularly in the people law sector where you don't have a lot of repeat players, people don't tend to care about court processes until they're in them. And then once they're out of them, they tend to think they're not going to be back in them and therefore they don't engage. But I do think there are opportunities to go to public venues, go to where the public meets in terms of online and in person and let them know that there are options with respect to court processing of cases, that virtual hearings are a possibility in terms of um, how the courts can potentially operate themselves. And just getting people involved and, and calling the courts and, and calling on change to court leaders and to others in the, in the government to actually make these changes. And we're, we're seeing different branches of government get involved here. And some people would say that's good and some people would say that's bad. But I think just more public knowledge about the fact that the justice system can change in ways that the public might want. It's just not doing that right now. Which leads me back to sort of the regulatory 
uh, reform issue uh, you you touched on. The simple fact is, is there just aren't enough lawyers to serve the legal needs of the of society as a whole. There just aren't. And the idea that we're going to solve it through pro bono activities is just, it's a good measure, but it's not sufficient. To me, that requires regulatory reform, regulatory change to be able to harness the power of other professionals of technology. Where do you all stand on the, on the need for regulatory reform and, and what would you like to see? I am very much an advocate for regulatory reform. When you think about pro bono and legal aid, obviously I'm a big fan of the people who do that kind of work. It's a necessary component of the strategy, but it suffers from what I call the starfish problem. That story of someone walking down the beach and throwing a starfish back and saying, well, I made a difference for that particular starfish. That's not a systemic solution. That's a solution for the individuals who are receiving pro bono and legal aid services. So you're right to point out that we need more systemic solutions. In my work in particular, I focus on two areas. One is unauthorized practice of law reform, and one is the other is reforming Rule 5.4 on co-ownership and fee sharing. So the UPL reforms that I would advocate and do advocate for in increasing the number of people who can provide legal services and and specifically provide legal advice. When you think about that beach, you've got one legal aid lawyer throwing a starfish back. Well, let's get a whole cadre, a whole tier of professionals helping throw those starfish back. So that's a UPL the UPL reforms that I'm really interested in and have been involved in around the states. On the 5.4 reform, and this tends to be a bit of uh, a lightning rod, and I appreciate that there are valid concerns with respect to opening up law firms to outside investment. I still, though, believe that it is necessary in order for technology and other scalable solutions to become part of legal services delivery. Not a lot of lawyers out there on the solo and small firm market have several million dollars that they can put from their own money into their law firm to invest in creating technology that would allow them to scale their services. So outside investment, risk-based investment is needed, in my opinion. And so I have been supportive of the 5.4 reforms that we're seeing across the country. Let's talk a little bit more about each one of these on the UPL front. What's the argument you, you run up against to that, that opposes that? And where have you seen success? I mean, the state of Washington tried it and didn't get a great take up on it, if I recall correctly. Sort of where have you seen successes and where have you seen struggles in this area? Well, I think a major success that I'm seeing is just this culture shift across the states and actually having these conversations and asking these questions that what is a no brainer in the medical industry for some reason is very controversial in the legal industry. So the fact that we're even having these conversations right now and that bar associations and courts and insider stakeholders are talking about this, I think is an absolute success across the board. The arguments that I hear most against this are first that this would create a two-tiered system of justice. And that notion is that people who could afford a lawyer will hire a lawyer and people who can't will hire as someone that is less trained and less educated in providing legal advice. But that's never an argument that has ever resonated with me because right now you have a two-tiered system where people who can hire a lawyer do hire a lawyer and people who can't are by themselves. And that's just not a good outcome for many people. So this two-tiered system is is a big argument that I hear. And then the other that I hear, and I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't know that opponents would put it this way, but it's essentially this notion that other professionals are not capable of learning and they're not capable of receiving the education that they need to provide legal advice. And that's the argument that you have to go to law school three years in order to figure out how to appropriately handle, for example, a family law case. Family law is one of the areas where a lot of these providers are are coming out into the market. 
But I reject that wholeheartedly. I, I believe that paralegals, others are capable of learning the skills they need to serve individuals and provide some tailored legal advice. And outside of that, particularly in family law, the irony is that no one, no lawyer in a jurisdiction that I'm aware of is required to take a family law course. So you have an entire graduate class coming out of law school, having never taken potentially a family law course. And now you don't even require it. It's not required on the bar exam. So you don't need to study family law at all in order to then go and hang a shingle and help family cases through divorce and separation issues. So I would rather have someone who is specifically trained on these issues and who might not be a lawyer, but who has received that education than a lawyer who has never even heard of family divorce and, and how to proceed on those cases. So that training piece, I think, is that the second big argument I hear. Yeah. You, and you make the analogy to the medical profession. I mean, these days you go in when you've got a problem and you see a nurse practitioner or you see some other professional, maybe you don't even ever see a doctor, uh, they could prescribe things. And I don't understand why that analogy isn't apt for the legal profession. What type of training do you advocate for the equivalent of a nurse practitioner in the legal profession? So I think that's a great question. When we're talking about the nurse practitioner type programs and, and IELTS refers to these uh, providers as allied legal professionals. When you're thinking about that, I do think that you need uh, substantial training in terms of the evidentiary issues, family law issues, trauma-informed issues. And states have done, a, I think, a really good job of tailoring for their jurisdiction robust curriculum requirements for what is required in order to serve families in, in simple divorce cases and custody cases and potentially even domestic violence cases. So I'm not an expert in terms of what education one needs, but I am in favor of some of the models that states are setting up in order to provide that kind of training and education. Uh, and it is robust. We're talking a year, two years, in addition to potentially paralegal education or, or graduate education. I would note, though, that there are other providers out there, and there's a legal empowerment movement as well, that would allow people to receive legal advice from providers who don't have that kind of two-year degree or licensure training that we're talking about with allied legal professionals. And I am in favor of those more informal programs too. I think the balance is what is the scope of legal advice someone can give and what is the education and training necessary to prepare those people to give that. And the broader the scope of legal advice, the more training and education ostensibly you would need. Let's talk a little bit about your new venture, Access to Justice Ventures, which uh, you started in October, if I've got that right. Yes. What's the idea behind it and what are its objectives? I'm really excited about Access to Justice Ventures. The ethos behind the company, uh, the reason that I wanted to start that is to really assist on the ground entrepreneurs who are interested in scalable justice solutions and particularly to let legal tech entrepreneurs and lawyers who are interested in, in changing business models, to let them know about the opportunities around the country that are increasing in these new regulatory environments. So, for example, letting entrepreneurs know about Utah's sandbox and Arizona's alternative business structures, but also bringing legal tech entrepreneurs and law firms into the mix on these new providers that we've talked about. What are the states where there are providers now at a tiered level who might add to the service delivery of a law firm or a legal technology company? So that's that's really why I was interested in, in starting Access to Justice Ventures. And, and that's my prime target audience are those people who are already making changes to improve delivery of legal services to people in a way that is scalable and takes advantage of some of the regulatory innovation that's happening around the country. What types of technology get you the most excited about this opportunity? 
Because there's been a lot of interesting work done in the A to J space in the legal tech world. Where do you see the opportunities coming? What technology excites you the most? Well, I don't want to jump on the bandwagon, but I will. Oh, chat GPT, isn't it? <laughs> Generative AI, I think, is extremely exciting. Um, and I, I know that a lot of people uh, who have been on your show recently have talked about this, so I won't go into detail. But even to take a step back, talking about the types of technologies that allow for the one-to-many service delivery model. Attorneys, rightfully so, in many instances, focus on bespoke legal advice. And Richard Susskin talks about this at great length in many of his books. But there is this in-between between bespoke legal advice and no legal advice that encompasses a lot of legal information, which attorneys might think is not necessarily within their scope in terms of practicing at the highest level. But individuals need legal information. Things is, where do I go to the courthouse? What's it like to go to court? What is this form? Where do I access the form? What does it say? Those things that don't qualify as legal advice are really important for people and attorneys can monetize that. So legal information and then that kind of legal guidance, which is in between legal information and bespoke legal advice, which I think people, uh, attorneys in particular, can do a good job of scaling so that you're creating a, a one package piece for a divorce litigant that can serve a lot of divorce litigants in your jurisdiction. And those are simple technologies that have been around for a long time. So how do you go about vetting out opportunities coming to the new organization? How do you, what, what are you looking for either in founders or the technology or the goals and objectives? You must have some criteria. Well, at the moment, because we came into existence at a, a very difficult economic time. So at the moment, what we're really focused on now are two things. One is just bespoke consulting with companies who are interested in navigating different regulatory waters. And then the second thing is advocacy. Advocacy is huge. It's it's what I did a lot of at IELTS and I continue to do because when you think about the market of companies that we're trying to serve, and this is a market of companies that are in regulatory, I don't want to say gray waters, but they're in new regulatory environments and taking advantage of regulatory innovation. The universe of those companies is very small. It's a small market. And so in order to build that market out, we actually need regulatory changes across the state. So a lot of work I do is just advocating. Uh, it's, it's a passion of mine. I believe it's going to create a much bigger market of legal services providers. So in order to then go and support at scale more founders, I need to be a part of the change that would allow those founders to flourish in these environments. So we're at a very early stage. I'm playing a real long game with Access to Justice Ventures here. You almost have to play a long game given the challenge, right? Yes. So let me back up a little bit. Talk about IELTS a little bit. What is the organization? What are the goals and objectives of it? And sort of what roles have you played in it over the years? Because you've been with them a pretty long time. Yes, I could talk about IELTS all day. The people at IELTS are so near and dear to my heart. I will always be a part of IELTS. IELTS is the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, and it is a research institute at the University of Denver, or what our founder would call a think and do tank. So oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, she really liked that too, and I, I think it encompasses what IELTS does. The, the woman who founded it is a former Colorado Supreme Court Justice, Rebecca Love Corliss, and she stepped off the bench in 2007 in order to open an institute that would allow for actual change on the ground. 
She was riding circuit up in the mountains of Colorado as a trial court judge before she stepped on the Supreme Court. And she saw all of this need and, and a particular focus and passion of hers was in family cases. And so she wanted to have an impact, not just be on the bench or not just be doing research around things. So IELTS has this really unique process and there are other organizations out there that do this too, but IELTS will essentially bring people together. Convening is a huge piece of the IELTS ethos, bringing disparate perspectives together and trying to talk about these issues. And then from that conversation, IELTS will often go forward and research, whether it's empirical research or legal research an issue. They'll bring people back together to vet that research. And then there's the, the process of developing recommendations and implementation and evaluation. So if you think about it in a circle, IELTS starts at the very beginning with research and convening stakeholders and then ends up back at the other end in terms of evaluating whether things have worked. And IELTS, I think, oh, I know, IELTS will be the first to say that if something is not working on the back end of evaluation, then that process starts again. And we admit, okay, this is a different approach is needed here. So IELTS is working in a number of different areas that have expanded over the years. The first is civil justice reform. I initially worked in that space when I started at IELTS. And a lot of that initial project work was focused on civil case processing. So the whole gamut from pleadings, initial disclosures, discovery, expert witnesses, trial, case management, how can we streamline that process to make it more effective and to make it uh, more cost effective for the ultimate client? We also work in family justice reform, and I led that initiative for many years before stepping down full-time last August. In the family justice reform area, we look at similar things to civil case processing, but how to take the actual adversarialness out of the process where that makes sense for people. We have an out-of-court model that IELTS has pioneered, and the main goal of that model is to ensure that there are different pathways for families going through the system who need different services and different levels of case touch. We are also working in judicial performance evaluation, judicial selection, and judicial evaluation, and finally, legal regulatory reform and legal education. That's quite a portfolio. It is. It is. There are quite a few people doing great work there. So let me sort of look overall. You started a new venture, Access Justice Ventures. You're still working at least part-time at IELTS. Yes. If I understand correctly, you're also limited partners at a couple of investment funds, venture capital funds. And you're a transition consultant at the Self-Represented Litigation Network. It exhausts me just reading the uh, number of activities you've got. How do you find the How do you find the time? I make the time. I think that's the, the answer to that question. Is as I make it, it's really important to me to be involved in these different pieces, and I'll never give up the advocacy piece. I think one of the key frustrations I hear, particularly from younger generations of lawyers, is how do we make these changes? We know these changes need to happen, whether it's the bar exam or legal regulatory reform or more money for legal aid. How do we make these changes? And the answer is you pound the pavement. You call into Supreme Court hearings. You go down to the Supreme Court and stand in front of them and argue. You call into bar association meetings. You're loud about things that you care about. And that's, again, where the empirically informed outrage comes from. Even if you're loud, people tend to listen to you more if you actually have data backing up what you're saying. So that, for me, it's worth the time, in addition to actually doing activities that pay my bills, it's worth the time to me to find time to go out and be an advocate for system reform. So I, I know we're bumping up against our own time limit, but last question for you. Take me out three to five years. Realistically, what changes would you hope to see in the legal system, in the, in the, in the, in the regulatory framework? What goals have you set for yourself? 
I would like to see a regulatory framework that is actually responsive to public protection and the needs of the public. And this includes talking about consumer harm when we're looking at regulatory enforcement actions. And it includes taking to some extent the interest of those who are being regulated out of the conversations on public protection. I think there's a lot of tension happening there. And I don't believe that regulated lawyers should be having final say over legal regulations. So I would like to see that change. I would like to see more states who are actually adopting legal innovation, even within the context of experimentation. There are a lot of mechanisms out there to experiment with reforms before you implement them in a system. And I think that states are under a duty to explore those. I'd like to see a lot more leadership from high courts and states, particularly changing this culture that we as state courts actually do need to serve self-represented litigants, that we cannot rely on attorneys to do that because that's not happening. I would also like to see a huge influx of founders in the legal technology space that are serving litigants directly. And whether they're leveraging new technologies or old technologies, I would like to see that as well. And then finally, I I would love to see lawyers and I would love to see members of what we might call the traditional legal profession getting engaged and being the disruptors, because I think that is possible for lawyers to be the disruptor of their own industry. And I would really like to see lawyers start doing that. Well, those are some fabulous objectives in if there's anyone that can make it happen, it's clearly you and, and folks like you. So thanks for all the work you're doing. And thank you for making time today to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.